0: I'm uh, Marcello Giubinelli. I'm a senior lecturer in English language and literature at Aston University in
1: Birmingham. Hello, and welcome to another Straight Talking English bonus anniversary episode. One year of me telling you Mockney things about literature. I love it the voice you just heard was our guest today introducing himself it is mr marcello giovanelli lecturer legend and the person who knows the most about grammar and linguistics dude wrote the book literally wrote the book on a-level grammar teaching and i'm really 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 fortunate that he agreed to come on the show and have a chat to us but i going to apologise a little bit about the audio on this one because it was a remote interview. I'm doing this bit later. It's all been like chunk and change and pick and mix. So bear with me. Be prepared to sort out your volume as we're going through. Let's do a little bit more from Marcello. First up, why do you think it's important for young people to learn English as a subject at school? Well, that's a really nice question to begin with. I I think
0: English is one of those subjects that help develop different kinds of knowledge and different skill sets, regardless of who you are, uh, regardless of what particular... Subject you, you specialise in, or whether you, you see yourself as a scientist or an, a more arts based person or someone more interested in humanities. English develops those knowledge and skills that are relevant for all those particular curriculum areas. Hence, that's why it tends to be a, a core subject in schools and so on. What I mean by those sort of things are you develop the sort of criticalities around reading and writing, synthesising information, learning how to build an argument learning how to take from different sources, learning how to recognise bias and, and how to deal with it. And of course learning how to talk to other people as well and develop your ideas in collaboration with others. And English has always or well, the best English teaching has always been dialogic insofar as it, you know, encourages you to to talk to other people um, and develop your ideas for other people. So I think, you know, a bit like maths really, it's it's one of those subjects that is quite difficult to define. And that's why you see historically, and even now, perhaps even more so now, you see all sorts of, um, you know, debates and contests and arguments and even battles about what's important in English and what knowledge in English should be. And it's for that very reason that it's actually quite hard to pin down because it, it covers so many different things, if that makes sense.
1: Partly the reason I am talking to Marcello today is because... He is the gentleman who wrote the book when it comes to grammar. A lot of people are put off teaching grammar. So what what do you think about that? Why do you think people are put off teaching grammar or including it in their teaching?
0: It's a really good question. I think I think the, the word grammar has, uh, has unfortunately acquired various negative connotations along, along the years, largely because if you go back, um, you know 50 or 60 years or so perhaps even longer 60 70 years um, grammar teaching in schools tended to be very very dry um of dry activities that were sort of uh, around prescriptivism i.e rules so you know learning lists of uh, uh, of what different word classes and, and learning rules that really were just sort of made up of made up language really you know fabricated sentences the students had to sort of pass and pick out the noun and so on and um, that's not really interesting to anybody and it's certainly not going to help you develop in any way so I think we've, we've suffered in education from, from that for, for many many years really interestingly when sort of advances in, in, in linguistics in universities tended to uh, it, it, you know impose themselves in the school curriculum a little bit more, we saw some really interesting language study going on in the 60s and 70s off the back of Michael Halliday's work at UCL um, and, and things like the Language in Use project. Um, you know, teachers becoming more interested in the sorts of things they could do with their students that were around examining language in the real world. Um, you know, why we talk differently if we live in Liverpool than say London or um, you know, our gender or age or or culture might affect the way we talk and, and, and think about language and so on. But I suppose what's kind of uh, in a, held that up a little bit has as always been teachers are still hung up on this notion that language work equals sort of those dry grammatical exercises still from the 50s. That hasn't been helped by the Key Stage Two tests in recent years, which has promoted a particular uh, kind of pedagogy around language. Um, although I would argue it's still good that students in primary schools are learning about language, but perhaps the tests or the way the tests have facilitated that isn't good. So you've got a whole history of sort of negativity around language. And the other thing, of course, is that most English teachers are literature teachers. And, you know, I, I've done some some research myself looking at this. It, teachers get very anxious being when they're asked to teach something that they, they don't feel comfortable with you know, and uh, uh, an English literature degree doesn't prepare you to teach grammar to, to 13, 14, 15-year-olds.
2: Um, and, and that can be quite sort of, you know, that can be quite an anxious experience for people. So you've got that sort of historical negativity about
0: about language. You've got all these pro- very problematic curriculum and, and sort of centralised government policies coming through. And then you've got this, this whole issue around teacher education as well. What I would say, though, a couple of other things, is that... Firstly, much of this could be avoided if we stopped compartmentalising language and literature, if we didn't see grammar as something that was sort of outside of English literature, but uh, language work and grammar work as integral to study, studying literary texts as well. Um, and I have to say that university English departments are at most fought for this um, by continuing to offer English literature programmes um, and calling them English programmes when they're not. So I think we could do much more in higher education to really try and integrate English as a as a university subject, and I think that would help uh, teachers and so on. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that language is the most natural thing to us as humans. It is it is, it is the thing that sets us apart from from you know uh, all other animals in the world in a way. Um, and and so it, it's you know, it should be the most interesting thing for young people to study. And I think, you know, schools that do this well are those that really think outside the box and and, and have really, you know, enabling um, schemes of work with key Stage three uh, on, you know, variation, language and society, language and gender, language and power, language and technology, uh, why languages change, um, you know, why we have attitudes about accents and, and things like those sorts of topics that really infuse and interest young people. And, you know, they do work and they do, they do enthuse young people. You've only got to look at the, the increased popularity of A-level English language over the years, which has uh, had sort of varying degrees of uh, language work, various types of language working, depending on the example. Um, but it's been a hugely popular subject. Um, and, you know, students and their teachers are interested in language work, I think. So, you know, grammar has unfortunately kind of become a, an umbrella term for all different sorts of language work in a way, and that that's unfortunate and I, I actually think it's time, you know, well beyond the time actually for us to sort of reclaim glamour grammar as something exciting and uh, something worthy of study
2: you know, there's, there's no reason why language works shouldn't be right at the the heart of the
0: english curriculum not marginalized
1: i mean absolutely you're preaching to the choir here one of the things when i'm working with a young person and i bring up a grammar point is their face kind of implodes on itself Mm. and you get a blank don't get it how would you engage with that if someone just said right don't get it
0: well i suppose you'd engage with it as you would as any teacher would with any any don't get it in any subject if you you know it, it teaching an aspect of Shakespeare and someone, is, someone says, don't get it. Um, you know, I, I think engagement seems quite a dirty word at the moment, but <laughs> in many ways, I'm not sure why. But, um, you know, I, th- I think finding ways of getting students interested in those sorts of things are are paramount. I actually think part of the reason this kind of partly answers the previous question as well, is that the, the models of grammar that we've been, or the models of language or the linguistic theories that that kind of been recontextualized and handed down to schools have been pedagogically inadequate as well and it's no surprise that the that, that countries like australia and new zealand do much better at this than we do in the uk work with very different models of language they work with uh, largely in the systemic functional tradition which is a, a functional model of language which sees language is inherently tied to social contexts. Um, the basic premises that we use language because we're social beings and we interact with other social beings and therefore, we need to think carefully about the sorts of choices we make, you know, to get our messages across and to maintain interpersonal relationships and the rest of it. Once you place language in a social context, or rather, once you understand language as a social phenomenon in a social context, it it, it acquires a kind of relevance, I think, and an engagement that the dry "let's label a, the noun here, let's label the pronoun there, let's pick out the subordinate clause, let's pick out pick out the restrictive relative clause, whatever" just doesn't, because that that seems doesn't really seem well, there seems to be no point to it, and I think that's why a lot of teachers kind of turn off as well. So I always—I mean, I—I I, I haven't taught in secondary schools for for many, many years now. But um, you know, when I when I teach language at university or when I do work with teachers, I always try and emphasise uh, c- conceptualising the subject in a way that makes it inherently interesting. So seeing language as a social and a cognitive phenomenon, you know, is, is, is situated in our own sort of functioning as, as social beings in a material physical world. Um, and drawing on those sorts of things and drawing on some, some better linguistic models as well. There's some really interesting stuff out there at the moment um, by you know researchers looking at not just functional linguistics as a pedagogical model, but increasingly so cognitive linguistics. I' have just uh, been working with my colleague Chloe Harrison on a, on a uh, PDF for Oxford University Press, where we've got uh, six teachers who have done um, uh, put together some teaching activities based on cognitive grammar, which is the area of uh, linguistics that Chloe and I work in, um, and they've gone' out into their, they've gone into their classrooms, done some work with cognitive grammar, written those up, and they're being published by OUP as a, as a PDF. In a month or so time there's a guy called ian cushing at brunel um who just finished a phd with me here who's doing brilliant work going into schools and engaging teachers with cognitive linguistic concepts and ideas and there's someone called joanna gavins at sheffield who's done similar work around text world theory, which is another cognitive model of language and she works with school teachers and runs workshops and so on so you know i think Part of the issue is sometimes that we are working with really outdated and pedagogical models of, of language that or sorry, models of language that have very little pedagogical sort of merit as well um, and again it, it, all this comes back of course to teacher knowledge
2: and teacher teacher training and, and, and the rest of it but I have to say that every one of these things I have you know workshops and sessions and
0: getting asked to talk at, at, at various teacher events. And I, I kind of introduce some, some more recent ideas from linguistics. Teachers love them and teachers see the inherent value in them. And I don't know if that answers your question or whether that will, that will stop somebody from saying, I don't get it. But there are ways of making this better pedagogically, both in terms of engagement and in terms of um, you know, work, working with language models that are, are, are better operationally and better pedagogically as well i think
1: could you tell us a little bit more about cognitive linguistics what that is how that what it involves how someone could apply it and i noticed as well like because i i don't have a linguistic background my degrees are in history tell me a bit more about stylistic and what's going on there
0: oh okay uh so i'll I'll start with i'll start with cognitive linguistics first probably easiest I suppose the central premise of, of sort of cognitive approaches to language uh uh, one of the central premises is that um, we make meaning as a result of, of embodiment um, that we are we're we're beings in a physical world we're constrained by our bodies, we have eyes that are in front of us and look forwards they can't look backwards um, you know, the, the world is around us, we can't walk through doors we, we, you know, we, we can't fly in the sky we, we're situated on the ground the rest of it, we have bodies that are in a uh, a vertical rather than a horizontal position and the rest of it um, so, so those sort of those sort of embodied features really impact on the ways in which we, we conceptualize things and the way we could, we represent those conceptualizations through language the other sort of premise of cognitive linguistics is that language is inherently tied to other cognitive faculties so in um, you know, the same processes by which we, we see and we think uh, and we learn to ride a bike and, and, and the rest of it are all processes that we use when we, we, we learn and use language. Um, so that, that sort of manifests itself in, in lots of different ways. An obvious way is something like where we draw on um, metaphors that are based on our bodies to describe abstract things. Um, a really straightforward, basic one that you often get, of get used in cognitive linguistics, is uh, life is a journey. You know, my life, my, my, you know, my career is going nowhere. I've reached a crossroads in my life. Um, I've reached a dead end. You know, the relationship come came to an end, or we're only just getting started. Those sorts of things, where we conceptualise abstract ideas such as our lives, our careers, uh, our love lives, even in terms of starting on a journey, going on a road, reaching an endpoint, reaching a barrier in the road, and so forth. Um I mean those those metaphors as most sort of conceptualizations in themselves are based on very sort of primitive patterns or templates, which we call image schemas, cognitive linguistics, which are sort of templates for understanding the world that are based on spatial patterns. Um, so the idea of being in something, for example. Is, a, is an obvious sort of physical experience. We're in bodies, we sit in rooms, we sit on a bus, we sit on a train, so containment is everywhere. And we extend those to talk about, you know,
2: abstract things as well. We talk about being in love yeah, or, or being in denial
0: and so on. So cognitive linguistics, looks at, it looks at lots of things, but one of the key things it looks at is how embodiment works um, and consequently how we use things like these image schemas and, and metaphorical mappings um, to, to, to talk about the world and talk about our experiences of the world and represent the world in different ways um, and you know we, we can choose we can use particular language choices to construct um, different versions of, of reality and what we want to show I mean that that's that's a very basic <laughs> sketchy answer but you you can see straight away how there are some sort of pedagogical benefits there not least in, in asking in getting students to draw on sort of physical analogies to understand concepts such as prepositions in prepositions show, show spatial relations so you know the, the idea that they're built on image schemas is, is is quite an interesting way of teaching that um second language teaching does that a lot they use those sorts of uh, ideas yeah uh, you you can see how embodiment in general might be used
2: to, to teach things like metaphor or teach things like um you know the difference
0: between active voice and passive voice you know in in clauses active voices tends to fall around the the sort of thing doing the action, the passive voice pushes that to the end or downplays it or defocuses it, we call, we call it, and so forth. So there's some, some really sort of interesting pedagogical benefits of that. Um, stylistics, I suppose, is slightly different. Stylistics is really just the use of the use of language methods um, to, to look at not just literary text, but largely literary text. And stylisticians draw on the sort of best knowledge they have about language uh, and the social world and the mind. And use that in the service of literary criticism. Um, that's not always to say that um, it, it sort of ignores the things that literary criticism tends to do quite well, such as, uh, you know, biography, history, cultural context, and so on. Um, but stylistics tries to give a really strong language flavor to analysis as well. Basically, the premise is that literary texts are made out of language. so. Um, it it ought to be quite a good idea to analyse them using what we best know about language, rather than sort of relying on, on in language terms and so on. Um, you know, I, I said earlier I think these these kinds of things are are are, are useful for teachers um, where they're done well they're done very well. Um, again, I've, I've worked with teachers who have done these sorts of integrated these sorts of approaches and they're teaching well. The biggest drawback of course is we have an education system that still pulls language and literature apart um, right from you know key stage one onwards really and there's very little integration um, which
2: makes things like this difficult so you do get situations where
0: you know people perhaps um, either haven't heard of something like stylistics or don't see its value or not quite sure what it is or even scared of doing it because of the anxiety around language so all of that all of that would kind of go if we got rid of this silly uh this silly splitting of language and literature um but does that does that answer your question about cognitive linguistics
1: it does thank you
0: Cheap, sketchy uh, <laughs> sketchy definition there
1: so this season I'm running through for the second time the poems in the a q a anthology how let's say One of the poems, the most recent episode I did was on Blake's London, but I've just finished my script for Ozymandias. How would you integrate language and literature approaches for one of the anthology poems?
0: Well, I think, I mean, let's take Ozymandias. I think that's a a really good example of where knowing just a little bit about how language works can can really inform
2: your understanding of the poem, particularly in the sort of layering of voices and the layering of perspectives that
0: you've got. Um, And if, uh, if, if you think about the opening of the poem, um, we're asked to position ourselves, align ourselves with the speaking eye, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, and then push ourselves into another time, another frame, where somebody else is then speaking, even though his words are still mediated by the original narrator, To vast and trunkless legs of of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand, and so on, and and then you get a further embedded voice with Ozymandias, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, um, before the, the final couplet at the end seems to you know, could belong to anybody. So you've got sort of ambiguities about voice there and positioning. Um, and you can kind of track those things by looking at the language, you know, from the reporting clause in the past tense, who said, uh, that initially sort of you know, takes us into that second voice, um, to those sort of um, pointing words that position us around the landscape in the poem. In, in language, what we call this kind of thing, diexis, um, and there's, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that's been done on this and some really interesting analyses of that poem actually using diexis. I'm not suggesting you start, you go into a class and, and say, we're doing diexis today with a group of 12-year-olds or 15-year-olds, because that will probably put them off for the life. Um, but you can talk about those concepts. You can talk about how we, as readers of a poem, are asked to align ourselves with a speaking voice and then we're asked to shift ourselves into another voice I and mean, then shift ourselves further on and how the poem seems to layer those voices and then ask us to step back uh, to the point where we're not even quite sure who is saying which words or, or, or how those words are perhaps being mediated. And of course, the, the overall framing voice is of Shelley is the poet. So it raises questions about what Shelley uh, Shelley's points might be um, and and what students think
1: Shelley is, is, is trying to say by presenting some of those ideas in series of embedded stages and that's that's really
0: good language work you're looking at language there you're just not applying labels to it you know you're not picking out nouns and verbs and and things like that um and i think that raises a couple of important points firstly that you can do language work without necessarily um you know using the term straight away but secondly, that if you, if you do teach by concept rather than by term, um, students can, can kind of be, you know, get it really quite quickly. And then it becomes very straightforward to start talking about things like tense and start talking about, to thing, about things like um, you know, narrate, narration um, and uh, relative clauses and, and anything you want to that you might want students to pick up on as a way of labelling evidence in the poem. So I think you know you doing leading my concept and, and doing things which encourages students to, to think about language in a really enabling way is is language work um, and it's probably and you know I'm, I, as I say I, I haven't done this for a long long time so I'm certainly no expert now I may have been ten twelve years ago um, but it's I, I reckon still you're
2: likely to get a better end product uh, encouraging students to, to think about language
0: in their own terms initially rather than saying, right, we're going to look at a poem and I want you to label three nouns and I want you to, to pick up on a, a prepositional phrase and the rest of it because that's just labeling. That's just that's just, you know, descript, that's not descriptive linguistics it's just it's just labeling. Whereas good language work good stylistic starts on the premise that there has to be a motivation for looking at language features and that actually, you know, closely engaging with the language can yield really interesting literary interpretations. And then you, all you have to do at the end is, is come up with the meta-language to be able to put that into some kind of, you know, academic form um, if you need to, for an exam or for, uh, a class essay or, or, or for whatever.
1: I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about text world theory.
0: Oh, I can, yeah, certainly. Cool. Okay, um, so I mentioned this a little bit before, and, and um, I'll, I'll say a bit, but a really good site for this is, is the site that's run by Joanna Gabbins, Professor jo- Joanna Gabbins at the University of Sheffield. She's the, 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 leading, uh, the world's leading expert in textual theory, and she runs a site that has lots of information on, uh, and also has a teacher's uh, part as well, um, where there are some resources for, for teachers there, for, for secondary teachers and primary teachers. Um, so, you know, listeners to this might want to, to visit the, the textual theory site that's run by um, Joanna Gavins as well.
2: But textual theory is, is basically a model of, of communication um, that argues
0: that when we engage in any language event, whether it's reading a book or having a conversation or, or reading a newspaper or watching TV, um, we, we, we we sort of construct mental representations from the language that we hear. Um, so it works on a sort of free... Tier architecture. I'm simplifying things here, but it, it, I think this probably is more useful when trying to do the, uh, the more developed one. So the, the first sort of layer is what the textbook theory calls the discourse form. That's the context in which um, uh, any any act of communication takes place, um, and the context is the sort of it is constructed by the the the, the the reader and writer or, or, the, or the, the, the two speakers. So, you know, if I'm having a face-to-face conversation with somebody in my office, we, we sort of construct a context, a mental context for that, that conversation. Um, and that might be, um, you know, things that are relevant to what we're talking about, um, you know, the time of day it is. Um, and also in that context might be things we draw in the physical environment as well. Yeah, so um, that, that provides the context what we talk about. As we then talk, we engage uh, in, in sharing language, talking to each other, um, and in doing so, we, um, we, we direct each other to construct mental representations um, based on that language. Um, so if I, if I say to you, you know, yesterday I was reading a poem by Siegfried Sassoon, I'm asking you to construct a mental representation in your mind where a version of me in a time yesterday sitting down and reading a book by Siegfried Sassoon and what you do there is you you flesh out those words by adding in your own knowledge as well so your own knowledge of where I probably was I don't have to say that I was you know where I was exactly but you're probably unlikely to think I was sitting on a beach somewhere or sitting in a cloud in the sky um you might know about Siegfried Sassoon so you might know the kind of poetry I was reading um and you probably sort of understand other things by that as well you know i picked the book up i read the book and so on i put the book down and i finished with it so it it, it's a way of also um explaining how we draw on lots of schematic knowledge real world knowledge to flesh out uh meaning and, and and mental representations that we come up with otherwise we have to explain everything every time
2: we said something to somebody we'd have to give them all that extra textual knowledge as well so it kind of works in economic reasons as well so those mental
0: representations are sort of dynamic they can shift we can talk about things in the, t- uh, in the past we can talk about things in, in you know in other places I can say and then I went on the bus and went to London and suddenly you you, you know, your your mental representation of me has shifted to London and I can say in the evening I did this and so you're you're you're, you know, you're, you're following me in time, you're tracking me mentally in time. So it accounts for those sorts of things as well. And the, the, the sort of third layer of text, what textbook theory does is it, it can account for things that haven't happened yet. Um, so things that typically get uh, explained using modal forms. So, you know, um, I might go to the cinema tomorrow um, just by saying that. I'm asking you to construct a, a mental representation, but that, that hasn't happened yet. It's just a possibility. Um, so it's a kind of more remote space that I'm asking you to conceptualise uh, and imagine where, you know, at a time in the future where I'm actually you know, into the cinema. And you, you use the same kind of knowledge as you would for the, um, the straightforward mental representations. So what it does really well is it get us, gets us to think about
2: how we communicate, the role of language, the role of extra-linguistic knowledge or
0: schematic knowledge, um, and, and the kinds of things that we have to draw on all the time. We, we do this sort of, we do this um, seamlessly, subconsciously when we communicate. We don't tend to think about these things. Um, but textual theory offers a way of sort of standing back, if you like, and, and sort of analysing the processes behind um, communication. And you can apply that to literary work as well. So you can apply textual theory to when you're reading a book, how you know, a writer writes something and asks you to, to, to create mental representations of that. And that effectively is what reading fiction is, isn't it? A writer is inviting you, uh, saying, look, here's something I want you to imagine. Here's the scene. Here's a character. He does this. He might do this. And you create representations of that in your own mind. Interestingly, those are built up by the text. You know, we all read the same words when we read, when we read you know, a Harry Potter novel. But we might well, we probably all do have slightly different mental representations of what's being Um, describe because we all have different backgrounds and we all have different knowledge that we bring to the reading process. So it can also account for that sort of thorny, tricky question of, um, you know, how do people reach different interpretations of text? How is it that you read a poem and I read a poem and we we come up with different things, even though we're looking at the same words? Um, It's all about the other knowledge that we bring to that event and what we draw on. and it also, I suppose, uh, you know, puts, puts, the, puts to bed the, the, the issue of, you know, what is the, what is the, what is the meaning of, of a text? Um, the answer to that simply is the meaning of a text is what you use it for, what you read to it, you know, and, and it can account for different readerly interpretations in that way as well, as long as they're sort of, um, as long as they're granted in the text. So it has quite useful benefits pedagogically in that respect. Um, and I've, I've worked with some teachers using textual theory. Have used use it not so much as a model for analysis, but as a way of informing their classroom practice and thinking about the sorts of activities that they set up. Um, because if you, if we understand reading and cognition as drawing on knowledge that is, uh, you know, outside of the text itself, and, and, and people bring different kinds of knowledge to a reading experience, then you know, classroom activities can can sort of ac- account for that and take that into consideration, as well as filling knowledge gaps as well. Um, because, of course, if you're reading a text and there are things that the text is possibly queuing up that you, you don't know about, then, you know, that can be a really, really useful teaching point in terms of teachers teaching uh, and giving input so as the stu- students have the, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a useful amount, an appropriate amount of uh, schematic knowledge so they can access things and, and, and draw means from them. As I said, um, there's as uh, a researcher, Ian Cushing at Brunel, whose PhD was on this, looking at textbook theory in sec- secondary education. Um, he's done some really interesting stuff working with teachers in that respect. But it's it's a yeah it's, it's a really it's a really innovative, dynamic model, um, and it has uh, I, I think lots of, of of different uses. Um, I'm actually going to Australia later this year to talk to some Australian teachers about textbook theory. I'm doing a keynote at the. Uh, IFTY conference um, in Sydney um, and it, part of uh, or, or, or aside from the keynote I'm going to be running a, a workshop um, for Australian teachers introducing them to textbook theory. I'm not sure that textbook theory has quite got to Australia yet so um, that's my <laughs> that's my uh,
1: that's my plan for later this year. I'm, I'm meant to I meant to ask about this actually so um... I I spent a month in Australia in September,
2: yeah,
1: and because I am a nerd, I went straight to the um, education section of yeah. the bookstore, and I kind of knew this anyway because my partner's Australian. Um, the stuff they study for age sixteen and age eighteen, so GCSE and A level equivalent, is insanely difficult. Like, there is Ibsen on the. 18 year old syllabus I was kind of shocked by that like do you think different approaches are making these higher level texts more accessible or do you think that's just crazy people
0: I kind of I I kind of I have mixed feelings about the whole idea of you know you you, you've got to read things that are difficult or or you know canonical I have to say as a someone who works in a university I would I I'd be quite happy for students to come in Having read less, fewer, sorry, you know, fewer classics uh, than uh, you know, the, 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 the perhaps they sometimes do. I think that the, the obsession with simply uh, 19th-century literature at GCSE is, is 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 quite quite bizarre, really. Um, I, I you know, as a, as a university lecturer, I, I'm more interested in seeing students come in with an appetite for reading. Um, and their own uh, reading interests, and uh, a, a sort of, you know, desire to to find out more, uh, a sort of engagement really, a, a mindset, a mindset really for uh, for wanting to learn. I'm more worried about that than I'm worried about the fact that the red six novels by Dickens or three Shakespeare plays or the rest of it. And I think we can sometimes get, sometimes lose that a bit. Um, you know, lower down the sort of education uh, tree. Um, you know I I think I would much rather see students be able to do things like reference properly Uh, I think we've lost the focus on sort of difficult texts in England, we've lost sight of those skills that students typically used to do at GCSE and and at A level uh, in coursework such as their own research um, such as knowing how to structure and draft and redraft and reference all those sorts of things hard um, and, and
2: and difficult I think to, to get students as undergrads who can't do those sorts of things so I, I don't
0: know about the difficulty question I'm not even sure I've answered your question I I, I I just think that let's let's encourage students to read books and let's get them reading things they're interested in and if it's if it's Dickens and uh, and Hardy and, and and Shakespeare and Milton then brilliant but if it's other things then that's fine as well and and um, you know that there's there's nothing worse in in having to study something because somebody says you do. And that's quite hard to take as a as a young person, I think.
1: Well, dear listeners, I hope that was as as enlightening for you as it was for me. Absolute pleasure. Sitting down with Marcello and hearing a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of some pretty top level stuff. As I mentioned, I am no linguist, but I was really loving that and I was hoping that I could apply some of that to what I do. If you, honestly, if you're feeling the vibe after that, check out the Text World Theory website because it has been really, really cool. Just Google it and it's the first thing that comes up. Massive, massive thank you to Marcello for taking the time out to have a chat with me and I want to say a big thank you to you guys as well, you've been a year of being my listeners, and this is what the anniversary special is all about me giving back a little bit, and giving you something cool that might be a little bit outside the normal service, which I hope you'll enjoy it, str 8 English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com we are on our iTunes SoundCloud, Spotify Stitcher, CastBox you name it, you can listen to my Cockney Tones, Patreon on Flash Straight Talking English. Remember Amazon full context series. I'm actually getting somewhere on the one about poetry, so we might be there pretty soon. Cross your little fingers and youtube slash straight talking english i am going to be out and about the day after recording this section of this episode filming about byron so potentially could be byron or Shelley coming up next depending on my schedule thank you so much for listening both today and over the past year and i will speak to you very soon